This is Interviews, a podcast from the National Academy of Sciences that provides first-person accounts of the lives and work of Academy members. In this series of one-on-one conversations, scientists talk about what inspired them to pursue the careers they chose and describe some of the most fascinating aspects of their research. When a young Mary Jane Osborne announced she wanted to be a nurse when she grew up, her father wondered aloud why she shouldn't be a doctor instead. Fueled by his faith that she could succeed in what was then a man's profession, Osborne went on to study physiology and biochemistry. Her work as a graduate student revealed how methotrexate, now a major cancer drug, acts on the body. Osborne then turned her abilities to microbiology and spent decades exploring how bacteria make lipopolysaccharides, substances that help give potentially deadly bacteria their toxicity and virulence. She was elected to the National Academy of Sciences in 1978. I'm Mary Jane Osborne. I'm a biochemist turned microbiologist and I was elected in 1978. I grew up in Southern California, uh, primarily Hollywood, West Hollywood, Beverly Hills. Went to school first in uh, UCLA and then Berkeley, and finally got my PhD at University of Washington. What did your parents do? My father, I think, was a really brilliant man, had an eighth grade education. He was a machinist and had his, built his own uh, shop in the late 30s and uh, made small parts for aircraft companies during the Second World War. My mother was, uh, he, he was a Coloradan. My mother was born in uh, Arkansas, grew up in a very small rural farming community, uh, went to business school, migrated to Colorado where she met my father and they got married and then there was me and we moved to California when I was five. Did you have siblings? No. What was it like growing up in Hollywood in the late 30s and 40s? I think most people um, hear Beverly Hills High School and and think you know movie stars in training (laughs) and I'm sure it was quite different back then so can you sort of set the scene and describe what your what your neighborhood was like and Uh, when we lived in Beverly Hills we were living in a very handsome house that was built by a black architect who could not live at that time in Beverly Hills Uh, there were some very good teachers at the school there were also some not-so-very-good teachers at the school. And it, it had a social kind of flavor to it. Uh, the two stars, so to speak, that I recall, one was uh, Harpo Marx's daughter, and the other was uh, Andre Previn, who was about a year behind me. Beyond that, it wasn't a time that I particularly remember for anything except making a couple of very good friends. When did you become interested in science? Oh, very early. As I say, my father was an interesting man. I, oh, I must have been 10 or 11, and I had gotten in, I I was always a reader, and I had gotten into a series of books about a nurse, I, I recall the Sue Barton, and he asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I said, a nurse. I just want to be a doctor. 
So from then, to, then on, I wanted to be a doctor until, until I was in college and it was time to apply to medical school. And I realized there was no way in the world that I wanted to treat sick people. So then I was uh, at loose ends. And I spent a year as a graduate student in English, which I enjoyed a great deal, but uh, the will was there, but the talent really wasn't. And, well, every, everything has been more luck than good planning. <laughs> and uh, two very good friends had started graduate school in the physiology department at Berkeley. I'd been a physiology major while I was pre-med. And they sort of conned me into uh, joining as a graduate student one of the labs in the physiology department. And uh, that was, I realized pretty early on, one, that I enjoyed research a lot, and two, that I could be quite good at it. How many other women were studying physiology when you were an undergrad and then Ooh. in grad school with you? Well, I, I remember, I really don't remember girls, young women, in the physiology department. I think I was the only graduate student. I know I was the first uh, woman to be first author on a paper from that laboratory. Uh, in fact, the laboratory was unpleasant. And after two years, my husband and I took a year off, went to Europe, came back not to Berkeley, but to the University of Washington. And that's where I got my degree. And at that point, this is biochemistry department, our, my class of six was three men and three women. So women have been going into biological sciences for a long time. Uh, talk a little bit about the unpleasantness that led you to, to leave. Oh, <laughs> this was a laboratory that had something upwards of 40 students and postdocs. So it was huge. The professor was both a sick man and a rather paranoid man and the whole atmosphere was not good. And it was more related to him than to the fact that you were... Oh, yes. Oh, yes. No, no, no. No, that, that, uh, that was not a factor. That's interesting that that wasn't a factor. That, uh, was, that was, in fact, very rarely in my career has it been a factor. Maybe three or four times. At what point have you met your husband? In Berkeley, just before starting graduate school. And so you went to Europe. Where did you go? We Well, my husband got a job uh, with the University of Maryland, uh, not a teaching job, but in, in the office in Munich. So he spent most of the year in Munich and you know, traveled around a bit. And that was an absolute revelation. I wouldn't have changed it for the world. And when was that? 1952 to 53. And what was it like to travel in Europe at that time? It was not long after the war. Right. And Munich had been greatly destroyed. Most of the streets were one-story, mm, jerry-built shops and so on and so forth. But it was good spirit, a uh, very nice place. And... Uh, it was really a revelation, both in terms of, of Munich and post-war, and most especially in terms of, of European culture and art. 
My husband was an artist. Had uh, had the war affected your life at all? In a sense, yes. In that my father had worked extraordinarily hard and long, as had my mother, during the war. And he was a chain smoker of uh, roll-it-yourself Bull Durham cigarettes and uh, had emphysema and had, had a heart attack in 1947 and was an invalid thereafter. So, yes. I, I took one year off and uh, before going back to Berkeley and af- after uh, BA, BA or BS, whatever it was, and, and spent a year uh, helping care for him, which is extraordinarily painful. When you returned and you landed at the University of Washington, mm-hmm. uh, what was your experience like in that department? Terrific. Uh, it was a very young department. Uh, Hans Neurath, had, who was department head, had come... Well, the medical school was, was very new, and Neurath had built a, a very interesting young department that included two future Nobel laureates, and... Uh, it was a lively place, and I enjoyed it greatly and learned a great deal. My, my thesis advisor, Frank Hunnigans, was a really wonderful mentor. His door was always open, and he was always open to flights of fancy and flights of fantasy, and uh, it was just great. Uh, my thesis work had to do with uh, one carbon metabolism and the uh, biochemical role of folic acid coenzymes. Folic acid is, of course, a vitamin, and vitamin uh, physiologically is converted to a coenzyme, and I studied part of that conversion, and it's involved in synthesis of one of the bases of DNA and a variety of, of important uh, metabolic compounds. And I I guess one of the interesting aspects was I was the one who discovered the mechanism of action of methotrexate, which is an anti-cancer drug, and which is an inhibitor of metabolism of folic acid. So that that was pleasing. While you were in grad school? Yeah, that that, that was nice. And, And then what happened? I went to New York for a postdoctoral fellowship with, with Bernard Horaker. I thought I was going to go to NIH, but he moved to NYU in the meantime. And uh, this was a department of microbiology. And that was my switch to uh, bacteria, namely E. coli. And first I studied uh, transport of, of sugars into E. coli. And uh, then... The work that became my major contribution came out of a seminar given to the department by Otto Westphal, who at that time was head of the uh, Max Planck Institute for Immunology in Freiburg, Germany. And he was interested in the chemistry and immunology of a polysaccharide, which is a major antigen in salmonella and other gram-negative bacteria, but specifically salmonella. And this, this was a period of time when biochemical mechanisms of 
synthesis of large molecules, complex molecules, was at the center of life. RNA synthesis, DNA synthesis, protein synthesis, and nobody knew a thing about biosynthesis of complex polysaccharides. So that sounded like a very interesting thing to begin to do. So I did, and it was successful, and we worked out over the course of a number of years uh, the pathway of biosynthesis of this lipopolysaccharide. It's a polysaccharide that is membrane-anchored by a, a lipid tail. The lipid moiety uh, of the molecule is what is called endotoxin. And endotoxin is a very, very toxic molecule that in blood-borne gram-negative infections is extremely serious and can be very easily fatal. So the endotoxic properties are of major importance to, uh, immu to uh, clinicians and, and immunologists. And the polysaccharide portion is of interest to immunologists and clinicians as a means of identifying uh, gram-negative bacteria. And in fact, the polysaccharide portion is also a imp very important virulence factor. That is, if by mutation you delete it, the uh, pathogenic organism loses orders of magnitude of its pathogenicity. It's very easily mopped up by the immune system. So it's a nice molecule. That encompassed all of my interest for a long time. It was that work that got me into the uh, NAS. So what did you work on after that? So after, after that, like I closed my lab well, some few years ago now, and I've been collaborating with uh, a good friend and collaborator, Larry Rothfield, whose interest is in uh, bacterial cytoskeleton. And this is a, a relatively recent discovery, uh, initiated by him, in fact, about uh, 15, oh dear, 15 years ago. It had been assumed that bacteria were, you know, a, a sort of a loose bag of enzymes without any sort of internal organization. Turns out not true. And they have a, a, an elaborately organized cytoskeletal system. And it turns out that, that these cytoskeletal elements are organized in helices that go around and around the cell from pole to pole, uh, studied by uh, fluorescence microscopy and, and similar techniques, which is really a beautiful technique. It's great fun. And uh, what his lab and I are interested in is, is uh, what these things are doing. Why are they there? How are they organized? What, what functions do they carry out? So the bacterial cell is now a really very highly organized uh, small bit of protoplasm. And uh, the technology is fun. It's molecular biology coupled with fluorescence microscopy and other microscopic techniques. And uh, it's really beautiful to look at and fun to do. Um, you, you said that being a woman in your field affected your life maybe three or four times. Mm. But what was, what was one of those events that maybe was, was more significant or... Oh, none of them were terribly significant. Um, the first one was uh, I was applying for postdoctoral fellowships, 
and I had applied to what was then the Polio Foundation, March of Dimes, and they flew me, for heaven's sake, from Seattle to New York for an interview. And what I remember of the interview was, why do you want a postdoctoral fellowship? Why don't you, why don't you want to go out? Why don't you go out and get a job? I, I was astonished. I was stonied. I was I was mute. <laughs> it so shocked me. <laughs> they offered me a one-year fellowship, which I was very happy to turn down. <laughs> And then, and uh, well, what were some of the other ones? Oh, well, um, much of the Department of Microbiology at NYU moved to Albert Einstein, including me. And about that time, a few people in the biochemistry department at NYU really wanted to recruit me there. And the, the chair of the department then, who was a very famous... Nobel laureate, uh, old-time biochemist, said there has never been a woman in this department at the level of associate professor, and there never will be. What he didn't know was I wouldn't have touched that department with a 10-foot pole. How have you balanced your work with your life, with your personal life, with your family oh, life? Oh, I don't have children, and uh, that really didn't have very much to do with, with my career, but I don't have children. Uh, my husband was an artist, which made uh, location pretty flexible, since one can do art almost anywhere. Uh, so that was good. And uh, he was extremely supportive, and uh, it just flowed. I didn't really have, well, I didn't have the two-career family problem, which is a major problem, simply because he was open. Yeah, literally free to be wherever. And uh, it was always pretty straightforward, surprisingly enough. What advice would you give to a young person interested in a career in science? Mm, go for it. Yeah. I, at this point in time, particularly in the biological sciences, at least 50% of graduate students are female. Uh, I think the time has considerably passed when this might have been a problem for a young woman. I think, I think there's very little witting discrimination between men and women. The two-career family is, is a really major business. That is bad at this point. And it's particularly bad because Quite clearly, faculty positions, and especially tenure-track faculty positions, are getting fewer and farther between year by year as funding becomes more and more difficult. Child-raising is not easy, uh, unless you can afford a nanny, and who could? Most schools, most universities, do at this point have daycare facilities which are good but not necessarily cheap. And uh, if you're a woman and married, you need a husband who is both very supportive and very willing to share the burden. If you've got that and you have the interest and will, then there's no reason why you shouldn't succeed.
Since 1863, the nation's top scientists have been honored with membership in the National Academy of Sciences. Today, there are more than 2,500 in the NAS membership, of whom approximately 200 have won Nobel Prizes. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Interviews and invite you to join us again for another inspiring conversation.